The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg. And for our Week in Review edition, thrilled to have back on the show again, Giro Nima, our Francophone editor in beautiful Mauritius. A very happy end of the week to both of you gentlemen. Hello, it's so good to be here. Yeah, it's really nice to be here, Eric. Good afternoon, guys. I like bringing us all together on these days when there's so much to talk about. Today, we're going to be talking a lot about Kamala Harris's visit to Africa, which wasn't this week. It was really last week, but a lot of the reaction has come in this week, and there's just some fantastic sound. There was actually something very important that happened in response to her visit that we haven't really seen in the volume and concentration that we did on this visit. And again, I'm going to kind of paint that out for you guys. And I want you to respond to a lot of sound bites that we got from various African leaders. But Kobus, let's start with you first with a couple of headlines from later in the week. The Yuan Wang 5, which is a Chinese surveillance ship, this thing is just massive. It's a very controversial ship. It appeared in Sri Lanka I think it was towards the end of last year and got the Indians very nervous. Now, out of nowhere, it popped up in the port of Durban, and it's got a few folks in South Africa riled up as well. Yeah, this obviously is controversial because it comes weeks after South Africa's joint military exercises with both Russia and China, which happened on the one-year anniversary of the Ukraine invasion. So that the optics of that was, was unfortunate. And South Africa, you know, kind of got a lot of heat, particularly from Western partners on that. So now the ship is docked in Durban Harbor. You know, it's, it still remains open to see what it's actually going to be doing there. But of course, you know, the you know, because everything in South Africa at the moment is all about opposition politics and the ruling party. Opposition politicians kind of complaining that the ruling party is aligning South Africa too closely to China and therefore opening South Africa to hostile responses from Western partners. It should be noted that following up on, and this this I just heard in conversation with people at a conference recently, that apparently there was discussion in diplomatic circles in Pretoria following those joint military exercises about possible ways South Africa might end up being penalized by Western powers. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens, but it It'll be interesting. Yeah, that's the concern from Kobus Marais, who is the defense spokesman for the main opposition Democratic Alliance party, who said in an interview, quote, it's a concern that the ship is here. Why would she dock? Why is she around? Now, this ship, again, the Chinese will say that it's a research vessel, but it is staffed by the People's Liberation Army. It presumably does have military capabilities for tracking missile launches and satellites and other things like that. It does. I, I saw today in reporting that it does. Yeah. And so, again, it's just a lack of transparency in terms of understanding what the capabilities of the ship are and why it's there. And that's why countries from Sri Lanka to South Africa get a little bit nervous about it. So that'll be a story we keep an eye on. Also, a very interesting diplomatic visit kicked off this week. Our friend Wu Peng, who was on the show last year, he's China's top diplomat for sub-Saharan Africa. He went back to the continent this week. Uh, he's visiting three countries, including Sierra Leone, where he was formerly the ambassador. He's also going to Niger. And Kobus, there's one other on the list. Guinea. So tell us a little bit about what you think he's going to be doing. Of course, we don't know. He just 
published a tweet on that with no details, but give us a little bit of your insight as to what he may do in those three countries. Well, in Guinea, Chinese entities are very large mining concerns. You know, for a while, there's been back and forth around, you know, kind of how they're going to get a massive iron ore mine online, because the Ghanaian government has been demanding that they also build quite a lot of infrastructure there. So they are they are moving forward on that. And then in Niger, there's also this kind of pipeline concerns and also security kind of issues around the Sahel. Um, it is notable that U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken also recently visited Niger. So it's an interesting kind of like double visit. Yeah. The other story of the week that was quite big, and this was in the Central African Republic, uh, Giraud, we've been following the aftermath of the attack there that took place almost two weeks ago now, where nine Chinese miners were killed, two were injured. We still don't have any idea as to who did it, what their motivation was, but a Hainan Airways plane landed in Bangui and picked up 80 Chinese and evacuated. This is the first evacuation that we've seen from Africa of Chinese personnel in quite some time, but it really speaks to the growing insecurity that many Chinese personnel are facing, not just in the Central African Republic, but also in Nigeria and in your home country, the Democratic Republic of Congo. What's your thoughts right now on the situation in the Central African Republic? In the case of the car, I think it's uh, really the brutality of the attack and the kind of uncertainty behind the motive of the attack that prompted China to react the way they reacted. And from all the reports that we've been reading, we know that they've sent an intelligence cabinet or private companies to investigate, to work with the Central African Republic authorities to investigate on who's behind the attack. And I think, comparing to what we've seen elsewhere in the continent, is the fact that they seem to be dealing with unknown players here and the motive not being certain that they prefer to take certain measures to evacuate those who are not necessarily in the country. But I do believe that the case of Carl was really an outlier and they're kind of not sure about how it's going to play out. Well, last week, the Chinese embassy in Kinshasa brought together the Chinese business community, along with representatives from Frontier Services Group, which is the large Chinese private security contractor. And they talked about the worsening security situation facing Chinese entities, people and property in the DRC. Any thoughts on that, Joe? Yeah, for me, it's quite normal because when you see the rise of different security concern concerning Chinese, not only in DRC, Nigeria, and in South Africa and all, they kind of needed to bring up to date different Chinese company in DRC to put them on the measure they need to take in place to ensure the security. Because so far, we do know that some Chinese were being attacked regularly in Kolwezi where they mine cobalt and copper. But... In terms of security measures taken by the Congolese government, we haven't seen that much in terms of results. So for them, it was the idea to bring them together to say, hi guys, how can we work together to put in place mechanism for us to keep ourselves safe? So I'm kind of wondering if it's going really to be effective on the longer run, because without real security on the ground, it's going to be complicated for them to overcome those issues. We should also note that Frontier Services Group, while being officially a Chinese company, was founded by Eric Prince, who has deep Trump connections and being the brother of former uh, Education Secretary uh, Bessie DeVos. But it has been two years, as far as I know, in my research, that he has not been involved with the company at all. So it was founded by Eric Prince, but he is no longer affiliated with it. I think the Chinese kicked him out. No, CITIC has the full ownership of uh, Frontier Service Group now. 
It's funny, that issue became, anytime you bring up Frontier Services Group on Twitter, everybody talks about Eric Prince. So what an amazing brand he's been able to build there. Uh, We're going to be talking about the DRC later in the show and some really fascinating discussions that have been taking place on that. So stick with us till the second half of the show. Let's start now in looking back on what happened with U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris's visit. She went to three countries, Ghana, Tanzania, and Zambia. And this is notable because, listen, the United States has been on a tear this year. I mean, just a parade of officials. Kobus, I think you counted it up today. It was 30 officials is what we're seeing right now. Yes, Semaphore calculated it was 30 high-level officials going to 18 different countries in this first quarter of this year alone. That is remarkable. I can say that we have never seen this volume of traffic. Is that right? Yes, not in my time of looking at these issues. And the big guy is supposed to be going later in the year. They said towards the end of the year, I think it was, or sometime this year, Joe Biden himself will actually make a visit. But the United States is delivering on its promise to send high-level officials to Africa. And Kamala Harris, again, in her three-nation, six-day tour, she brought a lot of goodies with her, $7 billion in private sector and U.S. government commitments to promote climate resilience, adaptation, mitigation across different African countries. She also will provide $100 million to Ghana and four other West African countries to help deal with extremism and instability. Things like a $10 million grant to promote democratic and accountable local government in Zambia. And when it comes to HIV prevention, again, this is really one of the great success stories of the U.S. in Africa. Harris spoke quite a bit about what the U.S. has done, particularly related to its PEPFAR program. And in Zambia, she noted that $5.2 billion has been provided to the country since 2002 just for HIV prevention. Again, that is one of these programs that doesn't get a lot of attention, but it deserves just an enormous amount of credit and for what they've done and saved millions of lives. So very interesting on that. And there were also announcements for money dedicated to fighting malaria, protecting human rights, and even a $1.5 million fertilizer fund. So wherever she went around the continent, In those three countries, she was making these announcements. Now, while all of that is very important, very few of those announcements seem to have attracted the interest of Harris's traveling press corps as much as what she thinks of China. Now, it's really important to note that Harris was a very good soldier on this front, and she followed really very, very, very disciplined, the new White House strategy to focus on U.S. priorities and do whatever possible to avoid talking about China. That is, of course, consistent with the new strategy for Africa that came out last August. Was it last August, Cobus? I think it was August, September of last year that it came out, which the new strategy that the folks at the National Security Council, led by Judd Devermont, put out that basically wanted to reshift the focus away from China in Africa to focus more on what the United States is doing for Africa. And that was a theme also that we heard at the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit in December. But the American reporters who went with her didn't really seem to care that much about it. And really, they wanted to talk a lot about China. But you could tell this was starting to really grate on the African presidents she was with. Let me let you first listen to what that sounds like. First, we're going to go to Accra, where Harris and President Nana Akufu Addo held a joint press conference, and the China question came right at the beginning, which visibly annoyed the president, and he wanted to make sure the reporter who asked the question understood why. Um, is it Mr. Daniels? Is that the name? Mr. Daniels, thank you for the question. Um, I don't know, there may be an obsession in America about the 
Chinese activities on the continent. But there's no such obsession here about China is one of the many countries with whom Ghana is engaged in the world. Your country is one of them. Virtually all the countries of the world are friends of Ghana, and we have relations in varying degrees of intensity with all of them. You could see the frustration on his face when he answered that question. And again, this happened also in Lusaka during a press conference with President Aikinde Hishilema, and a journalist there also raised the China issue. And again... Hishilema sought to challenge the narrative. Uh, China's influence in Africa is very controversial in Washington. Do you consider China's role in the continent a constructive one? And what could the United States do to play a more constructive role here as well? Let me just step aside a little bit and say things must not be seen that way. Things must not be seen that way. I totally agree with the Vice President that uh, we're here to foster the U.S.-Zambia relationship. But there's a context in the sense that that relationship um, exists in the operating environment where other countries also exist. So, but the contextualization that if the U.S. and Zambia share a lot in common, strong bilateral relationship, historical relationship, then they are doing things against China. He's actually wrong, completely wrong. So I have said before, when I'm in Washington, I'm not against Beijing. Equally, when I'm in Beijing, I'm not against Washington. We have a globe we share. We have a planet we share Earth. For us in Africa, we have our continent. It is easy to say when the president of Zambia is visiting Pretoria in South Africa, he's against Abuja and Nigeria. That's the logic. Not quite. What we expect of America and China as the two leading economies, number one, USA, number two, China, is to help us keep our world safe for everybody. Well, there you go, Giraud. I mean, it couldn't have been more clear the frustration on both the, from the, both the presidents that they don't want to hear this line anymore that's been coming for years now. I mean, again, this is something that American journalists and politicians have been saying for going back more than a decade, and they've had enough. Exactly, they've really had enough of that, of that rhetoric. And I remember Kainde Chilima has been saying that since last year when the debt issue started in Zambia, when people started to raise the China question and everything, he kept on saying there's no need, Zambia is not going to choose between China and the U.S. Even when he came back from the yeah, U.S.-African leadership summit in Washington, D.C. last year, he also said he repeated the same thing, Zambia will not choose. And that's, that's been quite consistent among many... African leaders on the continent where they say we are not going to choose. I really liked one of the lines that he used at the end of this portion when he said that we want U.S. and China to, you know, to work together toward peace. And it reminded me what Naledi Pandold, a South Africa Foreign Affairs Minister, said a few weeks ago when she was visiting Algeria. She said exactly the same thing when she was like, for us, for the world, for Africa to really benefit, we need China and the U.S. to be working together and not fighting toward each other and asking us to pick side. And that has been a consistent messaging that we've been hearing from 
African leaders. And Nana Kufuado, I remember watching the press conference. And you could see, as you were saying, you could see the, the kind of frustration, the kind of like, not that China question again. And he was like, yeah, your name is Daniel. And he came back and like, no, there's no obsession. He really make it really quite short. There's no China obsession in here in Africa. And I think it's time for many in Washington to start listening, especially in the press scope. Those who are following uh, U.S. officials in Africa, they should start really listening that we don't want those kind of questions on the continent anymore. Yeah, Kobus, this really could have been any leader in the global south saying this, because we've heard this in the Middle East, in Southeast Asia and elsewhere, and it could have been anywhere across the continent. There is a growing frustration on the part of a number of leaders, not only with the U.S. government necessarily on this, but also with the U.S. media and the U.K. media. We're going to talk about the U.K. media later, but that they keep propagating this narrative. And again, you can see this pushback from these leaders saying, enough, we're fed up with this. Yeah, it's, it was quite funny for me. I mean, it's revealing of a bigger story that we're seeing at the moment, just that a, a real kind of like split in worldviews between the global north and the global south. And I think European Council on Foreign Relations polling data has really made that clear. I think the clearest that we've seen so far is that most respondents like in Europe and, and the US and other allies in the global north tend to think of the future as a bipolar one, you know, kind of one where there's a Western coalition versus China. And then many respondents in the global south tend to think of the future as multipolar, you know, where Global South will work with various kind of powers of different sizes, of which the West is an important one, but not the one making all of the rules of the game, you know, as they used to be, and where China is also an important one, but not the one that blanks out all of the connections with all of the other ones, and where powers like India and Saudi Arabia and so on also play massive roles. So, you know, I think I think it's just like it's really a, a fundamental kind of like split in how these different groups of people see the world, and I think the media is making that very clear. Yeah, you remember a couple months ago, and I think maybe even late last year, there was a quote from S. Shankar, who is the external affairs minister of India, which said that your problems in the West are not our problems in the South. And I think that was really powerful, what he said, how the West chooses to socialize all of its problems, but at the same time privatize any of the issues that are in the global South. Let me get your take on that before. I want to get to some sound from your external affairs minister, Naledi Pandor. Go ahead first. Yeah, no, just in relation to India, I mean, that, you know, kind of like point taken and, and that and it's a fantastic zinger, you know, kind of is one that one always wants to kind of throw out. But it's a little rich coming from India, considering that their own kind of like local geopolitical fight with China is increasingly being kind of inserted into a larger global north dispute with China, you know, that so India is riding that geopolitics, you know, quite effectively. And so for him to then be like, oh, but, you know, little us, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's a little disingenuous, but you you know, point taken. But it's quite interesting, though, because just because of him going out and saying that and stating that we don't want to be choosing side, it's quite like, okay, in terms of narrative and the perspective of it, it's like, it's quite interesting, the zinger, but as you say, in terms of how genuine it is, it's something else. Yeah, but Giro, is it not a little bit naive for Hishulema just to be saying we want the Americans and the Chinese to be getting along? I mean, is he not paying attention to what's going on. These two sides are not going to get along with one another. We are literally more concerned about them going to war than we are about anything else right now. And it just seems kind of, I mean, maybe he has to say this as a politician and he's sitting in front of the U.S. vice president, so he's got to say some happy, fluffy things, fine. But it strikes me as a little bit naive that that's where we are of like, we need them to work together. They're not going to work together. I think that's about as clear as we can make it sound right now that these two countries are increasingly on a war footing, and the idea that they're going to somehow come together in the name of Zambia just seems naive. 
Yes, of course. That seems naive. I think he was being diplomatic. You know, we want the world peace. We want the two great powers to work together, the two great economics to work together. But I don't really think that he believes that that's going to happen. The core of this message for me, it's quite simple. We don't want to pick sides. So guys, solve your problem there. Because, and we've seen that how Zambia has been pushing back about that narrative when it even comes about its own debt issues. Like, we don't want to be forced to bash against China. Because as much as they are realistic about what's going to happen, what may happen between the US and China, they're also realistic about what they can get from different partners, from China or from the US. At the very basic level for them, it's like, you guys, you can keep your fight outside the continent. Don't bring your fight on the continent. You want to come on the continent, you're going to have to make peace with the idea that I'm doing business with China. And you, China, you're going to have to make peace that I'm going to do business with the US. And that should not be a zero-sum game situation. And for the peace between them, I don't think it really matters that much for him, for, or for any African leaders anyway. The quotes from both the Ghanaian and the Zambian presidents made the rounds on social media and got a lot of traction. And what's interesting is it prompted people to go back into some previous comments and to resurface those. And one of those that came up was from South African Foreign Minister Naledi Pandor. And she appeared six months ago at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York for a discussion. And it was a very sobering discussion. And it kind of picks up on the themes that President Hishilema was saying, and also to some extent what we heard in Accra as well about the obsessions, that the perception of these issues from the point of view of the global south and that from the north are very, very different. And one of the things that I love about Pandora is, boy, she is not afraid to really tell it like it is and, and, and talk straight. You know, Kobus, you're probably going to tell me that, you know, there's a, a lot of hollowness and it's just politics and, you know, but uh, it's refreshing, honestly, to hear what she has to say. Let's take a listen to her comments. And then, Kobus, I want to get your reaction. Um, you know, I think this notion of international rules is very comfortable for some people to use when it suits them, but they don't believe in international rules when it doesn't suit them because they don't apply international rules or law equally in all circumstances. So you can't say because Ukraine has been invaded uh, that suddenly sovereignty is important, but it was never important for Palestine. Mm. It's very peculiar. Mm. If you believe in international law truly, Mm. then wherever sovereignty is infringed, it must apply. Mm. And this is the point we've been making that we use the framework of international law unequally, depending on who is affected. And we are arguing that that must change. And one of the interesting changes that has occurred is the sudden movement, because Russia has invaded Ukraine, that we say, okay, let's not allow the Security Council to just have the veto and let it pass. We take it to the General Assembly. When some of us had been calling for the General Assembly to have a greater say, we never enjoyed support. But suddenly today, see, that's where international law begins to mean nothing. Because for some, we see it as a cheating, and for others, we see it as a benefit. So our argument is let's revise the international uh, multilateral system to ensure that we observe that post 1948 has arrived. 
Kobus, that is not a message that folks in Washington hear very often, and I think that would be quite discouraging, but I think it's a very sober reminder for policymakers in the U.S. and Europe that they're going to have a tough sell right now because the rules-based order that they're trying to defend is not one that I think a lot of people in Africa want to defend themselves because it hasn't been very kind to them over the years. Yes, I mean, you know, zing. <laughs> like, like each sentence was just like, I, I can imagine that you could just imagine the, the temperature in the room in New York just falling, you know, several degrees with each sentence. You know, it's like, yeah, it, she laid out very succinctly, I think, a lot of the kind of core objections. That is, for example, informed South Africa's position, very controversial position on Ukraine, for example, and a lot of these countries, you know, refusal to also, you know, kind of gang up or, you know, kind of, you know, form like, Join opposition against China, and and I mean that's a it's a it's a tough barrier to overcome, you know, kind of because it immediately the the Africans are essentially well, I see your point, but let's refer back to Libya, to Iraq, to Afghanistan, you know. So it's you know that's yeah that's that's you know it's a bit of a stalemate, I think. Yeah, and another really powerful speech that took place last week, alongside all of this that was going on, took place in London by Nigerian Vice President Yemi Obensanjo, who gave really a very important speech at King's College, where he too challenged Western thinking about what the Chinese are doing in Africa. And again, put this in the context of what we heard in Zambia and Accra. And again, Giro, I'm going to get your commentary on this, so please listen very carefully. Most African countries, as you can imagine, are, in my view, rightly unapologetic about their close ties with China. China also shows up when the rest, when the West uh, will not or is reluctant to show up. And many African countries, of course, are of the view that uh, the warnings about the Chinese uh, Trojan loans uh, may be wise, but uh, are probably self-serving. Africa needs the loans and the infrastructure, and the Chinese offer them. In any case, the history of loans from Western institutions is not great. The memory of the destructive conditionalities of the Bretton Woods loans are still fresh, and the debris is everywhere. And the preoccupation of Western governments and the media with uh, the so-called China debt trap might well be an overreaction. <laughs> this was all in one week that we heard this. I, I mean, you know, in all the years that I've been covering this, I've never seen this level of pushback. Giro, you and I have had these conversations, and I can anticipate you saying, well, it's about effing time. It's about time. It's really about time that people start to talk, to say, you cannot come on the continent and lecture people about China. You cannot keep on doing that. And it's kind of condescending in a certain way, because you're coming and you're, saying Africa, you're telling African leaders, no, you don't know better. You don't know how to deal with China. Us, we can tell you how to deal with China. You don't need to deal with China. China is a bad guy. But at the same time, those African leaders are saying, but you guys have close economic ties with China. When French President Emmanuel Macron is going to Beijing, he's going with French entrepreneurs and French companies. So how can you come in Africa and tell us, no, 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 you guys, you don't know how to deal with China. China is not good for you. But in the same time, when you're going to tell you that we need infrastructure, we're going to need financing for infrastructure, for electricity, you won't give us. If you want to give us, you're going to come up with a long list of conditionalities. At the end, we won't be able to meet the criteria. At the end, we're still remaining poor. And I agree what he said toward the end when he said, China showed up when none of you wanted to show up. If you remember correctly, when China started to show up around the early 2000s, 
it was the moment where the World Bank, the IMF, was implementing this highly indebted poverty scheme, the HIPC in Africa. Many countries were struggling with that. So when China showed up at that exact moment, many Africans remember that, you know, at those exact difficult times, China was there. You cannot come up today and say, you know, China is bad. But, you know, guys, you have to really be take a back seat and think twice about you, what you've done to us before starting to lecture us about how we should be dealing and how we should be approaching China. Kobus, a lot of academics often talk about African agency in the relationship with the United States and China. This, to me, seems like an articulation of that agency. I think so. Partly it also, it's agency in terms of determining the kind of discursive rules of the conversation. You know, because so frequently, like, I think the idea that Russia and China are very similar, the idea that they both, quote-unquote, malign, you know, and the idea that, that China is essentially a massive problem in the world, that has become so normalized, I think, in Washington, D.C., that I think it's startling, I think, frequently for people who don't have a lot of exposure to African opinions to realize that Africans don't feel this way. And so to a certain extent, like, them kind of drawing these lines repeatedly is also saying like look when you're dealing with us you need to respect how we see it how we talk about it the kind of like discursive parameters that we draw in you know in, in describing this relationship we we're not just going to default and fall into the way that you define it which is a very big kind of like piece of control you know kind of in order to then kind of move on and do anything productive what was unfortunate though was that while the nigerian media covered osinbanjo's comments in great detail it was really impressive to see how many publications showcased the speech at king's college not a single uk publication mentioned it and not a single us publication mentioned it so again it has this tree in the forest falling effect i mean it's unf- i mean how is it possible that at a king's college lecture when you have a nigerian vp in town i guess how is it possible how how naive do i sound that that the uk press would actually care about what a nigerian vice president says but it just strikes me that when this started to surface on social media and even in the nigerian press that somebody didn't flag the guardian the bbc or anybody in london to say this is really interesting he's taking a contrarian view on this. But these media narratives, in many respects, Cobus, are durable because people don't hear anything outside of their own feedback loops. Yeah, I mean, that this is why those journalists were asking these African presidents about China, is because they realized that their readers are so palpably disinterested in Africa that the only way to get them to read anything about Africa is by mentioning China. You know, so that's the logic. You know, there's like, there's very, very little interest in Africa in, you know, kind of in the global north. And so weirdly, China, that kind of China panic becomes a kind of a selling point. Yeah, I mean, if you want to see what China panic looks like, go onto YouTube, search Fox News, Kamala Harris and China. And my goodness, they went all in on the China hysteria this past week. Jiro, let's kind of go to your neighborhood now in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We'll also stay in London at the same time. The Financial Times last week hosted a conference where energy correspondent Tom Wilson sat down for what was an absolutely fascinating interview with Congolese finance minister Nicola Kazadi. And what I want you to hear in this exchange is how, again, again, just to what Kobus was talking about, how African leaders are seeking to reframe the narratives around China. So first, you're going to hear Tom Wilson's question about the Congolese government's desire to renegotiate the $6 billion cobalt mining contract with Sikomins, and then you'll hear hear Kazadi's response. One of the flagship initiatives that President Felix Tshisekedi has taken since he came into power was his 
willingness to challenge some of the existing Chinese investments in the country. So he began a review of the famous Sikkimins deal. Why, why did he do that? And what's the status of that? Yes, but that you should process? present it the right way. It is not about challenging Chinese investment. It is about challenging investment that are not fair. And it is not only with Chinese. We have some issues with others also. But the Chinese are the most important players currently in the country. And we are trying to fix two or three uh, major issues that we have with their companies, which uh, are very important to the country. Mm. And as I, I'm, I always say, we should not see it as a political issue. It's an economic issue. We are discussing with the Chinese. I'm sure that we will get to an agreement with them. Uh, but uh, what is clear is that uh, what happened in the past was not fair because those who negotiated those uh, agreements were not well informed on the situation. And now it is clearly, the, it is very obvious that uh, it was not fair and uh, we all agree on that. The only thing is that we have to, to, to close the, the negotiation. Mm. Giraud, I think it's going to come as a surprise to many folks when Kazadi said it's not a political issue because a lot of people do frame this in political terms between the U.S. and China, specifically over access to cobalt and the strategic resources. Okay, so Giraud, you're from the DRC. You know what's going on. You've been doing this for a long time. You know these players. What is Kazadi saying? Break it down for us. Let us read between the lines a little bit. So yeah, basically Nicola Kazadi is saying about the Sikomin deal, the one that came from the 2008 agreement between the Chinese consortium companies and the Congolese government, is the fact that the DRC did not gain the $3 billion investment infrastructure that it was supposed to gain out of the agreement. The general office came out with a report saying that out of the $3 billion, only $825 million were invested. And if you remember correctly, a few days ago, the Chinese embassy held a press conference with the Sikomin, kind of reacting to that by saying, we are not responsible of how much money we spend. We, we've done everything. We keep everything to the Congolese government. And it's up to them to tell you how much we invested on that side because they were giving us the list of infrastructure and we're providing the money. How the money was used, that's not up to us. So in that perspective, you kind of understand that the Congolese government is coming to say, Kolakas is saying it's not politics, it's economics, because there was, the economic part also comes with the second part of, an, uh, of another contract that I think that we are going to talk about, this china Molibedam contract, but we're going to come back to that later. But for the Sikomin deal, you have to understand that there's also the infrastructure component that comes with a certain level of political agenda behind, because it's the only Chinese deal right now in the DRC which has a infrastructure component as an obligation, as a contractual obligation. So when you are a government and you need infrastructure, the only Chinese deal that way you can really push through and see infrastructure coming out of it is the Sikomin deal. Now, there was something that Kazadi said that just completely blew me away. And I have not been following this issue anywhere near as long as you have, Giraud. But honestly, I've been in the space for more than a decade and I did not know this. But let's kind of get into it. Tom Wilson, he then moved the discussion with Kazadi from the Sikomins contract dispute to the standoff between the DRC state-owned mining company Jekamins and the Chinese mining giant Simok, who you mentioned, Giraud, 
over the Tenkei Fungurume mine, known as TFM. Now, if you're not familiar with what's going on at TFM, basically there's been a nasty dispute over the past, what was it, about a year, year and a half now, over the amount of reserves of copper and cobalt that are in the ground. Now, the Congolese say the Chinese need to pay more in taxes and royalties. The Chinese say they'll pay what's in the contract. And the situation has gotten so bad that we're looking at now about a billion dollars of copper and cobalt that's piling up at the mine because they've shut off the roads to get the cobalt and copper out. So it's really starting to cost the companies and also the Congolese quite a bit of money over this standoff. But let's find out from Kazadi his take on this. And again, there's a very important fact, Dejero, that I want to get your take on as well. The way they, the, they have calculated the reserve uh, of Tenke Fungurume mine at the beginning. And uh, it, is already, it is now clear that the figure that they gave at that time were not uh, real. And the thing is that this come not from the Chinese themselves. The Chinese, they took over after a US-based company or, or Canadian company, which is Freeport. Mm. And it started with Freeport. The, the problem started with them. And the Chinese took over. But now they have to fix that because they are the owners. Freeport also did this. It's just, I, I mean, again, I'm speechless here because in the context of the U.S. relationship in the Congo for the past 60, 70 years, okay, let's say 100 years, I also learned in you know, recent weeks and reading some books on Congolese history that the United States Air Force participated in backing Belgian forces against the Congolese. The United States, of course, was implicated or responsible for the death of Patrice Lumumba. The United States was part of the reason that Mobutu Sese Seko became the dictator for as long as he was in the Congo. And again, all of this combined, it just, it shocks me again when you look at the rhetoric today that the United States has no acknowledgement to the history that it's contributed in the Congo. And again, I think it's important to acknowledge this because while history may not be important to us, we're focused on the present and the future generally as a culture, it's really important to everybody else. And the fact that Freeport McMoran did this, and when you hear U.S. officials talk about the corruption in the mining contracts, you never once hear the fact that this was actually started by an American company. I mean... Again, okay, the drinking game can begin. Cognitive dissonance, there you go. We have a drinking game on the show that every time I talk about the Americans and they say there's a cognitive dissonance, <laughs> you can take a drink. Here we go. So, uh, Giraud, maybe you're not surprised by this, but honestly, I just, I, I, face palming, face palming. I'm really not surprised about that because we've been saying that for years that the TFM problem now, it didn't start with China Molibedam. China Molibedam took over Freeport McMoran in 2015-16. What Nicola Kat is mentioning really started in 1996 when the Canadian Lunding Mining won the TFM project and later on included Freeport McMoran into the project. And even starting then, the... IMF and the World Bank were really critical about the deal by saying that the deal does not reflect Congolese interest and they were saying that we believe that the real reserve were undervalued and when in 2007 President Kabila was elected, he really started to renegotiate those deals. I was really pushing hard. We want that those contracts to be renegotiated with TFM and they renegotiated it in 2010. They had a new agreement but yet they did not address the reserve question. They just rose Jacamin shares by all 
almost 20% and everything. They really did not address the real cause of the issues. So until 2015, when they decided to sell to China Molibedam, and even then, when they were selling China Molibedam, the Congolese government was not happy at all. They were completely against it by saying, how come you are selling this to China Molibedam without talking to us, without discussing the future, without discussing those different issues that we've been having for many years? So it just tells you that, you know, today, when you hear that, and when it's presented by telling you it's the Chinese, you're like, no, no, guys. The Chinese just took over the advantage and the benefit and everything they heal gotten advantage they got from the different deals they got with the Congolese that was signed by Canadian and American companies in the DRC in that project there. Okay, Kobus, I want to kind of start wrapping up our discussion here. And I want to try and kind of bring this all together that we've heard from two African presidents about the frustration with the U.S. media narratives related to China. We heard from a Nigerian vice president who kind of came out in very strong defense of the relationships, unapologetic is the word that he used. We heard from Naledi Pandor, who said, listen, this system that you're trying to defend is not been a system that has benefited us. And then we're hearing from the Congolese finance minister that really the Americans were as complicit in all of the dysfunction that we have today as anybody else. Now, again, I don't say any of this to take the heat off the Chinese or any type of scrutiny off the Chinese. But I think fundamentally, there's a messaging problem that the West and the United States has in particular with its approach in Africa. And I think this collection of soundbites from just the past week should be a really powerful reminder to U.S. policymakers and to European policymakers that unless they change their approach, they're going to face more pushback and more resistance and more frustration. Absolutely. I mean, it, it is also, uh, you know, kind of like interesting to see how even as all of these different kind of forms of pushback happened in this week, reporting about that pushback was non-existent in, in, in the Western press. Non-existent. Not anybody covered it. No one talked about it. It's a real kind of example of this kind of Chomsky and manufacturing of consent, right? Kind of where the fact that the that Western media is generally so open and so unconstrained provides this kind of illusion of full visibility, which of course is not true. So you know, so so it's, that's it's it's really interesting. I think just also in in a larger point, I think it again kind of shows, despite China's importance, you know, as a development partner, it was a latecomer in Africa. And to a large extent, so much of, of, of the different kinds of form, different pivots that different Chinese actors have made in Africa have been in response to a situation that was overwhelmingly created in the interaction between Africa and Western power. You know, so a lot of African problems and a lot of kind of the way that just simply the way that the system works is the result of these kind of centuries of interactions between European powers and like other Western powers powers and different African powers. So in that sense, that context tends to tends to fall away frequently in Western coverage of China-Africa relations. And that context, one, one keeps having to kind of pull Western commentators back to that reality. And I think this is also what African, what, what some of the African leaders are trying to do is to be like, no, no, you know, like our relationship with you goes back to before the China era. And there were a lot of problems in that relationship beforehand, and they're still there. You know, and yeah, but you know, the, there's not a lot of appetite to, to to actually delve into that history, I think, in, uh, among Western journalists. Well, let's, Jiho, let's give you the final word on trying to pull all of this together, what we've heard, and the different perspectives. For me, it's basically what we've been saying f here for 
the past year and the past weeks to say that it's time to really start to listen to African leaders, to, uh, to listen to African in general. Beyond the leaders who are corrupted, and we can say whatever we want about them, but it's really time to really start to listen African society. When you say that we want to engage with the rest of the world, with the West, with China, with any kind of country, without being forced to choose to be like, you know, you have to be on our side. We don't want to be doing that. We want to be valued. It's also a sign of respect. I think we said that earlier, it's a sign of respect. But when you come, you don't force us to frame the question, the perspective that we are having based on what you see. And Naledi Pando really resumed it very, summarized it very well by saying that we cannot have that double standard. It really, this, this time where we have, we need that place where everybody can talk with the respect of each other's perspective on different issues. And it's really important. And as long as the media, especially the Western media, as long as they're going to keep on pondering and coming back with this China vs. West narrative to many African leaders, they're just going to be frustrating people. And that's going to produce a very unproductive situation. And it's time really to engage Africa for what it is and not because of China. Well, I promised a little dessert at the end of the show, and I've got it for you. And so it's not even just what the Americans are saying. And and again, the point here of this program is not to poop all over the Americans, but just to really highlight that there's not only a messaging problem, but there's also a tone problem as well. Now, Kamala Harris has struggled as a retail politician. She's never been very good at it. I mean, it was one of the reasons why she was one of the first presidential candidates to flame out of the campaign when she last ran for it. But we saw a little bit of this while she was on tour in Africa, and Chinese propaganda even picked up on it. And this clip that I'm about to play for you went viral. Okay, let me just play it, and I want to get your reaction to it. And increasing the use and development of apps. On that last point, I'd ask you to just imagine your own smartphone and the apps that it contains and what those apps then give you in terms of access to a myriad of information and systems that help you go about your daily life. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't know what to say. I mean, people were just like, there were some very funny memes on this of like, you know, apps? Africans don't know about apps? How is this possible <laughs> that Africans don't know about apps? And again... Oh, it, it's cringy, you know, Kobus. I mean, I, I mean, I'm I just. But again, people had a good. There's some great funny memes on this one. So head over to Twitter, look for that. And but it's just again, it's talking to people like they're children, and this is a problem. This has been a theme of the West talking to Africa for a very, very long time. Of course, she did not do it intentionally, but that's how it came off. Yeah, I think it's you know it's also like this field, you know, the relationship between Africa and the West, and then particularly as it also relates to China, is so there's so many tripwires. You know, it's such a it's 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 like a landmine field. You know, kind of like almost everything is weighted and freighted historically. Almost everything can sound condescending. Almost anything can make people come off as monsters. You know, so. So it's, it's tough. <laughs> well, I guess maybe there's some wisdom then that the Chinese have about not doing press conferences, not not talking about anything. I mean, just kind of hiding and they get away from Keep all of quiet. this. Keep it quiet. There's, Set phrases, that's all. I mean, maybe they're not so dumb after all doing that kind of thing, you know. So, okay, gentlemen, <laughs> let's leave the conversation there. Very quickly before we head out, though, Giro, can you tell everybody about 
the work you're doing over at Le Projet Afrique Chine. That's our French language website. And tell people if they want to get your newsletter, it's in French and it's free, where they can do that. So guys, if you want to receive our newsletter in French, you have to head out to our, our French website, www.projetafriquechine.com and you just write your email address up there you're going to be receiving our twice weekly uh, newsletter every Tuesday and every Friday where we talk different about different issues of China in Africa in French but there's also something else I'm doing and for that you're going to have to head on YouTube because on the China Global South project weekly now I've been doing these videos talking about news that we've been covering on the China Global South so if you go there you're going to find the video and those videos are in English not in French even though we might be doing some of them in French as well. But this is pretty much what we've been doing lately on the China Global South, on my side and uh, on, the, on the China Global South as well. Yeah, it's a lot of fun watching these videos. Our YouTube channel is in the show notes. We hope that you'll go and check it out. You can listen to all of our podcasts there, and also you can catch as well Giro's weekly clips that he's doing. And Giro and I, and I think Kobus, you'll join us from time to time. We're going to do a video show and just to kind of, you know, sit around and talk about these things, you know, YouTube is a great place to do that. We're going to be on video, which is a little bit scary for us, but uh, <laughs> okay, we're going to give it a try. Also, I want everybody to check out, we've got a brand new section on the homepage of our website, China Africa Climate News. We've got a fantastic new reporter who's joined our team uh, in Jenga, who is based in Nairobi, who is doing some remarkable reporting on all the latest China Africa news related to solar power, energy, sustainability. Uh, so you can find his latest articles that he's doing right on the homepage of ChinaGlobalSouth.com. That content, by the way, is available only to subscribers. And so if you'd like to access all of the information, get the podcast transcripts, get our daily newsletter and our full archives, which is now more than 4,000 articles, uh, go to ChinaGlobalSouth.com slash subscribe. Once again, ChinaGlobalSouth.com slash subscribe. You'll get a free 30-day trial. And if you are a student or a faculty, just drop me a note, Eric at ChinaAfricaProject.com, and I'll give you the links for a 50% discount. We love the fact that so many students and uh, teachers are subscribing to our service. And also a very hearty new welcome to everybody at the College of William and Mary in Virginia, who is our newest institutional subscriber. So we're thrilled to have you on board as well. And if you are also at a student at Boston University, you guys can also access everything we're doing for free as well and even sign up for the various newsletters. So that'll do it for Giro in Mauritius, Cobus in Johannesburg. I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGSProject and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at ProjetAfriqueChine.com and AfriqueChine on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic. <laughs>